Let us pray. Gracious God, as we turn to you, we pray that your spirit would be at work among us and within us, speaking your glorious truth to each one of us. So by your spirit, open our ears and our hearts to hear your word afresh and move us to respond as your faithful people. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Money is powerful, very powerful. Money builds hospitals and universities. It feeds children and sends them to summer camp. It creates art and music. It empowers people with jobs and training. Money also prompts trade wars and international tensions. It divides families and neighborhoods. It buys votes and exercises undue influence. And it is oh so easily idolized. Netflix has a series that I've been watching called Dirty Money. Each episode describes in detail the ways money has been abused and how the use of money has gone astray. One story tells of a defeat device installed in cars which allows the cars to falsely pass admissions tests. Another story told of a payday loan operator who had an extensive network of businesses charged exorbitant interest rates and channeled many of his businesses through a Native American tribe of which he was not a part. While these stories may sound a little familiar, I had not heard of the $18 million scandal in Canada pertaining to maple syrup. It's a fascinating story, and I won't tell you more in case you want to see the show. Perhaps stories of greed, money laundering, and theft do not surprise you because you know the truth of the scripture that for the love, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Or you may agree with Martin Luther that wealth is the most common idol on earth. If you are not surprised by the way that money has been mis misused, then you may be disturbed by this morning's scripture reading from the Gospel of Luke. This parable is delightfully difficult. The only consensus among commentators on this passage is that there is no consensus. Some even claim that Luke himself may not have been sure about the meaning of the parable, and that was a reference to the Gospel writer, not the dean. The story is of a rich man, a manager, and renters. The rich man was likely a landowner who rented out his land in exchange for a portion of the crops that were to be grown. The manager was the middleman who made sure that the contracts and the agreements were adhered. And this was a very common economic arrangement in the ancient world. Well, it turns out the manager was squandering 
the owner's property. The owner confronts him and fires him. So far, this is a straightforward story. Upon news that he was fired, the manager begins an internal di dialogue wondering how he will survive. He rules out manual labor and begging and instead decides on a financial solution. Before the renters knew that he had been fired, the manager went to each individual who owed money and lowered their bills. His purpose was entirely self-serving. He thought if they did them this favor, then when he was homeless and unemployed, they would feel indebted to him and help him out. It's a clever solution based on very quick thinking, really rather ingenious. When the rich man, the owner, finds out what this manager has done behind his back, how did he respond? We would expect the owner to be more outraged by the manager's actions. He has already squandered money, and now he's giving it away. It would be logical for the rich man to think to himself, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. He would not want to let it go. In fact, the owner probably could have jailed that dishonest manager for the first infraction. So now, with two offenses, he would make sure that he would pay for his dishonesty. That's a reasonable way for this parable to develop. Instead of the familiar story that we expect, however, there is a dramatic twist. The scripture declares his master commended him for the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. What? Did the Bible just praise dishonesty? And then there's more. Make friends for yourself by weans of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes. Oh, wait a minute. So now really the scripture is telling us to use dishonest wealth for eternal purposes? Goodness, what are we to do with this? Some people try to explain away the discomfort of this passage by claiming that the manager was actually acting righteously by excluding the interest that the owner had unjustly levied on the renters. Some claim that perhaps the manager was simply reducing the amount of his own commission or cut of the profits. Maybe. Ken Bailey, a New Testament scholar who spent many years in the Middle East, sees grace in this story. He compares it to the prodigal son of the story which just precedes it. In both parables, there's the beginning of an owner or father and a manager or son who squanders property, and then the manager's son finds himself in a crisis, has an internal dialogue as to what to do, and then finds mercy from the very one he has offended. For Bailey, the dual dishonesty of the manager makes the commendation by the owner all the more powerful. Instead of jailing him, the owner praises the manager for his shrewdness. 
I think Bailey's insight helps us to understand this passage in that just as we would not affirm a child for demanding an early inheritance only to party it away, so we do not affirm the dishonesty of this manager. And yet, this manager's actions are praised in a way that the prodigal is not. This parable of the clever steward, as it is sometimes called, continues the themes of poverty and wealth that are found throughout the Gospel of Luke. This Gospel addresses these issues in a variety of forms, such as in song in Mary's Magnificat or in the sermon of John the Baptist. And as the Gospel speaks of wealth and poverty in a variety of forms, so it also gives a multi-dimensional message. In Luke's version of the Beatitudes, there are clear blessings for the poor and also very clear woes for the rich. And yet there are also stories in which money is put to a very good use, such as that of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan works only because someone had sufficient money to pay for a hotel room and medical care and food and even to promise to pay for additional expenses in the future. Then yet again, another time, Jesus told a rich ruler, there is still one thing that you lack. Sell all that you own, distribute the money to the poor, and you, then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. There is a wide variety of instructions about wealth in this gospel. There is not a one-size-fits-all simple rule. Praise of a dishonest manager is not the whole story, but it is a piece of it. I think what this parable teaches is the power of money. Money has the power to change lives. The steward's shrewd and quick-thinking actions changed lives for the better. Prior to this interaction and prior to this crisis, the owner and the manager and the renters were in a structured, hierarchical, transactional type of relationship. And then with his scheming, the renters owed less money, for which they were grateful, grateful both to the manager and to the owner. The owner looked good because he was charging less, and the manager had a new interdependence with these renters while also securing his own future. In some odd way, is this a win-win-win situation? Can this parable help us to focus on the good that money can do? This morning we are going to take our annual offering for Habitat for Humanity of Durham, and this fall we will partner with students and departments on campus to build a home for neighbors in need. It takes a $75,000 investment to start one new home project, 
and this is followed by hundreds of hours of volunteer labor. Future homeowners who buy and are not given their home also invest significant labor into the construction process. Habitat has dis demonstrated that the stability of home ownership benefits families in innumerable ways. It is one response to our local issue of affordable housing. Your gifts today are powerful in doing good for others. And if you wish, you can join the building on Saturday. Robert Lupton, a minister who has babbled poverty for decades and wrote Charity Detox, advocates the power of money in creating jobs as an important means of, of alleviating poverty. He advocates investments in communities to create employment and to stimulate long-term economic health. Of course, the values of social entrepreneurship have been around for quite some time. Duke's Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program quote Mr. Duke's vision as saying that leadership involves harnessing the power of higher education for the larger social good to meet the world's great needs. Examples might be the Prospector Theater in Connecticut, which employs adults with disabilities to show first-run movies. Or Lead Genius, which uses technology to empower unemployed and underemployed people worldwide. They claim that 87% of their researchers were previously underemployed. Social entrepreneurship is far, far from an area of expertise for me which is why I resonate with Lupton's claim that churches might do well to encourage their business men and women to engage in mission. Perhaps those savvy in business are those who can most readily harness the power of money for good. We know that wealth and money can do both great harm and great good. It influences lives, communities, and nations. And it is exactly because money is powerful that it must clearly and consistently be placed under the authority of God. Today's reading ends with the admonition, no slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Money can be a terrible tempter, drawing us away from God, yet it also can be a force for significant good, changing relationships, and giving glory to God. When we remember that our resources already belong to God, then perhaps we are more likely to be faithful stewards of what we have. Our stewardship is faithful when it is consistent with the witness of Scripture, a subject of our prayer life, and can be discussed with trusted people of faith. It is good news that we cannot serve both God and wealth, for when money is placed in its proper role as a, as a resource 
we are to steward, then its power over us is broken and the power to do good is released. Maybe then it's possible to be a faithful and clever steward. Of course, there are some places where money is to have no power. And one of them is at this table. Here at this table, it makes no difference if the wine is served from silver or ceramic. At this table, all people, regardless of their financial predicament, are welcome. And at this table, we are reminded that the power of God is seen in redeeming love. And the power of redeeming love is always greater than the power of money. Thanks be to God. Amen.